hear some of the things that, that people are, are sharing as, as their testimonies and stories and things, commitments that they've made in this time of fasting and the reasons why they're fasting. And, and next week we're going to have an opportunity for us again to renew um, a time of, of uh, submitting prayer requests for people who are fasting and, and praying so that we can pray together over certain things. But I, I heard from, uh, from that one young person in our congregation, a sixth grader, uh, said to his parents, hey, you know, why don't we fast together uh, in light of uh, the, the, the fact that um, we need to be a people who fast together. Why don't we do this together as a family? And he encouraged his, his parents and his brother to, to get together and to fast uh, a certain period of time each week in order to seek the Lord God uh, in, a, in a greater way. I think that's one of the beauties of being um, this intergenerational thing. And more and more, I hope and pray that that would be uh, our story. And that would be the testimonies that come out of our congregation. Another person I, I talked about, and I mentioned this here in our, our letter, one, one, one fellow I was talking to said, um, in 10 days of fasting, I've been just focusing my, my prayer and, and fasting on this one particular area of struggle. This one particular temptation that for years I have been uh, wrestling with. And this person said, in just 10 days, I felt, um, I, I forget exactly the words, but something like an unusual level of freedom and a, a, an unusual experience of victory and overcoming over this temptation that I had never before experienced, that I could only go maybe like two days, but now it's been like uh, t- 10 days or however long it's been since that person uh, had been able to experience freedom from that certain, that certain uh, struggle in, in his life. Um, I, I know others who have given themselves to extended periods of fasting, fasting from foods for uh, some e- even weeks at a time. And I believe that as we take God's word uh, seriously and understand its teaching, it's not just for us to know, but it's for us to embrace this and say, is this really what I long for in my life? Do I really desire God in, in this way that I would put my appetites physically in place of, in that place where my spiritual appetite is and say, God, this is how much I want you. In my life, this is how much I need your guidance and direction. This is how much I want to do it, follow your path and your plan in my life. Uh, and today, this is how much I want to see this in the lives of other people. We're going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 9, uh, verses 8 through 21. We're going to look at the example of Moses, a man who fasted and prayed on behalf of his entire nation. And what drove him, what motivated him to do this? and what it means for us. Deuteronomy chapter 9, fifth book in the Old Testament. Verse 8, this is God's word. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. And then he talks about what happened. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I've seen this people, and they are stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I'll make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. 
When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. Then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord. For 40 days and 40 nights, I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, but at that time I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. This is God's word. So Moses here is retelling the events of Exodus 32. He's basically giving a history lesson. He's talking about uh, chapters 1 through 8 of Deuteronomy. We're like, here's what you need to do. Chapter 9 says, uh, let, me, let me give you a history lesson. Let's replay the videotape so that just like a, a basketball team, when they lose a game, they would watch tapes from old to see the mistakes that they had made so that they would not repeat the mistakes in the future. This is what he's doing here. He's giving a history lesson, talking about the time when at Mount Horeb, they sinned against the Lord. He had received the Ten Commandments, 40 days of fasting to receive them, and then he fasted, got the Ten Commandments. God said, your people are doing something bad, and so he went down, and then he fasted on their behalf. Three reasons why Moses fasted. I think this is highly important to us. If there are people in your life who are living a life that is maybe not the kind of life that is promised to them in the Word of God, whether they're believers or not, and then perhaps this has importance and in, in application in our lives. The first reason he fasted, Moses fasted because his people uh, had turned to idolatry. Right? His people had turned to idolatry. Now, what in the world is, is that all about? So Moses on the mountain fasting gets these uh, Ten Commandments from, from God. And while he's up on the mountain, as the people of Israel are down below, And they're just kind of hanging out, waiting for Moses to come back down. And so they start joking around, and they say, this Moses, he's taking a really long time up there. And he's really slow, and they started joking. They said, well, let's call him slow-mo. And and so they were joking and messing around and laughing. And silliness became seriousness in in very short time, because after 40 days, they're like, hey, seriously, uh, he's taking a really long time. And so they go to Aaron, and they say, can you just make us some gods who will go before us into the promised land? Let's make us something. And so uh, Aaron took all their, their gold, and, he, and oh, out pops a golden calf. And so they begin to worship this. And, and while Moses is on the mountain, 40 days in fasting, they begin this idolatry. And so God says, Moses, you need to go down. This is part of, you know, go down, Moses. Moses, go down because uh, your people are doing bad stuff, and I'm about to wipe them out. And, and so it's kind of like this, this scene where... Um, I don't know if in your life you've ever experienced something like this. When someone tells you, hey, you know what, uh, something bad has happened, and you, you, you hear the bad news, and, and you're going down to check out the scene to see if it's as bad as you think it is. Someone calls you up, and they're like, hey, uh, you know, I know you let, you, you let me borrow your car, um, but I uh, got into a little bit of an accident here, and it's not so good. And so you're like, oh, no. And so you're going with your friend, and you're driving to your car, and it's that sinking feeling, this this thumping in your heart as you're getting closer and closer and closer to your car, and then you see it. You're like, oh, my goodness. Or you're on, uh, maybe you're on vacation somewhere, and, and they say that a, a hurricane has come or a fire has come, and it, 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 it destroyed your house. And you're back on that airplane, and that, that feeling that you get, 
as you're going to check out the damage to see if it's really as bad as people said. Well, God said, Moses, hey, you know what? Uh, your people have done some bad stuff. I'm about to wipe them out. And so here's Moses going down the mountain, and he gets there, and he's like, oh, my goodness. Because he sees his people have turned to idolatry. You see, there's something very interesting about, about idol worship. Uh, you and I will all worship something. The, the, the question of spirituality is not, are you good or are you bad? That's not the question. The question is, what are you worshiping? Because all of us will worship something, one of two things. We will worship God or we will worship an idol. We will worship the creator or, as Romans 1 says, we will worship created things. And the question of our lives is, what are you worshiping? Because it is impossible for you to not worship anything. It is not possible to not worship because we're all worshiping something. What does it mean to worship? The simplest definition is we, we describe, we give something worth. We're saying, this is so worthy of my life, so worthy of my time. This is the thing that I value so much that can't imagine life without you. Right? That's what an idol is. What is that thing in your life that you can't imagine life without? That if I didn't have this thing, I, life wouldn't be worth living anymore. Because we all have them. Maybe it's, it's God. Maybe it's Jesus. Hopefully it is. But a lot of people, a lot of people uh, worship something other than God. And though we say we come to church on Sunday to worship the true and living God, the fact of the matter is so often we worship other things. That's why the Bible assumes that we will worship. And so the first two commandments deal with worship. You should have no other gods and you should have no idols. You make no graven image. Because all of us are worshiping something. We are ascribing worth to something. Ultimate value, ultimate worth to something. And here's one way that you could tell. Where do your affections go? Where does your attention go? And where does your allegiance go? These three things will help us to see what we are worshiping. Where, does your, where are your affections? What moves your heart? What gets you really excited? What do you get passionate about? Where do your affections go in that moment? What flutters your heart? What moves you? And where does your, where does your, uh, where does your attention go? When you just kind of sit there, right before you go to sleep at night, and you're lying down on your bed, where does your, where does your attention go to? When you can daydream. When you're having this conversation with a friend and they start talking and talking, you know that one friend who's always talking about themselves and they never let you get a word in? When they're talking to you and you're just kind of, you listen for a little bit and you realize, okay, it's going to be about a half hour before I, let, before I get a word in. You're just sitting there. And so in those moments, where does your mind go? You know, think about, I wish that, you know, this and this were, I was, I was doing this. I'd rather be doing this. I wish that, where does your attention go? And then last, where does your allegiance go? What is it that you're so committed to that you do anything to guard that thing? That you do anything to show your commitment to it, even risking your life, even risking your reputation, even wasting your money, even risking your family in order to have. What is your, what are you, where is your allegiance? See, I, um, I, I know it's very easy for me to slip into an idolatry uh, to say that my life only has value if I have my daughter, Manny. I, I know because I'm always talking about her. But I know that even at, at her young age, she's got her own idols, things that she can't live without, things that she would say, I can't imagine life without you. And if she doesn't have it, she would go crazy. Right? For her, uh, it's, this, it's this dog that she has. She got her first birthday. 
She calls it Mung Mung, and she's always, uh, always all about this dog. All of her affection goes to this dog. She, like, in the videos that we have, uh, so often you'll see her like kissing her dog or chewing on her dog's mouth. She's always holding her, her, her dog and, and hugging it. And whatever she does, she wants the dog to do. So when we feed her and we say, Manny, eat, eat your, eat your uh, soup, she'll always eat it, but then she'll take her dog and she'll try and feed it to the dog also because she loves the dog so much that whatever she has, she wants her dog to have. We, we try and make Manny drink milk. Manny, here, drink your milk. She gives it to her dog first to sip on before she drinks it herself. She recently got this new slide uh, in, in, in her uh, back patio that she likes to slide down. And the other day, she's like, oh, this is so much fun. I'm going to let my dog slide down it also. She was sliding the, the dog down. This is, this is all of her affection goes towards her dog. Not only that, all of her attention goes to it also. When she's just sitting there in her moment where she's just uh, thinking about nothing, I don't know what babies think about, probably the same thing that rocks think about, just kind of like whatever. She's thinking, and, and then all of a sudden, she'll, she'll look up and she'll say, Mung Mung, Mung Mung. Right? She wants her dog. In those moments where nothing is going on, she daydreams about her dog. Her allegiance, she is so devoted to her dog. That no, Sometimes she'll drag it like in the, in the dirt and stuff like that, and then she'll start kissing it. And so uh, being a good mom that she is, Olivia will say, okay, we're going we're gonna to wash your mung mung. She'll put it in the, in the washing machine, and Manny will go crazy looking for it. Like, what's happening? Where is, where is my mung mung? She will do anything to, to guard that and to keep that and to, and to have that because that's her idol. Without that dog, she would be so sad. She'd be so sad. Life would almost, for a 17-month-old girl, would fall apart. I, I'm not that surprised, though, because when I was young, I also had an idol that was a dog also. My, it, it, Manny's was named Mung Mung, but mine was named Snoopy. And everywhere I went, everywhere I went, I would take that thing. Sometimes in our family pictures, you'd see like four of us, and then I'd be holding my, my Snoopy dog. But here's, how, here's another way that you can tell that something is an idol. I would wake up in the, in the middle of the night sometimes, and I would reach around because Snoopy wouldn't be there, and I would just flip out. I'm like, oh, my gosh, where is he? Where is he? And, I would, and then I would see him on the ground. I'd, I'd be so thankful that Dad didn't come and steal him from me. Not because he liked him, but because he knew that I, it wasn't good for me to, for a, like a 10-year-old boy to play with dolls. So I, but I would pick him up. Here's how you know that something is an idol in your life is you have nightmares that if this thing were to be taken from me, I don't know if I could live. I ke- the way Tim Keller says, he's, he's an author, pastor up in New York. He says, the things that you dream about, if only I had this, then life would be worth living. Things that you have nightmares about. If this thing were to be taken from me, I don't think I could live anymore. If this girl, my girlfriend, would be taken from me, I don't think I could live anymore. If, if all of these gifts and talents were to be taken from me, I don't think I could live anymore. If my status was taken from me, I don't think I could live anywhere. That's why we get so upset when we don't make it into uh, this school or that school or that IB program or don't get this job or we apply for this and, and we tell everyone we're going to get it. We don't get it. That's why we, we don't want to tell the truth about it because we guard our status so much because status has become our idol. We don't want anyone to take that from us. It's interesting because for me, it was a dog. How twisted, how backwards that I would take God as my God, and make a dog into my God. This is what idolatry is. It's backwards. It twists things around. And it starts out silly. It starts out simple, but it gets bigger as we get older. Now it's a car. 
Now it's a home. Now it's a dream. Now it's a child. Now it's a family, whatever that might be. What are the things in your life that you can't imagine life without? See, for Moses, he understood that his people had slipped into idolatry and it was so visible. It was so visible. And he said, you know what? I can't, I can't let my people live like this. There are people that you know that you care about who have given into idolatry. That where maybe one day it used to be God that they were worshiping, but now it's something else. Now it's that dream. Now it's that hope. Now it's that person. Now it's that possession. And they can't live without it, and they're chasing it, and they're pursuing it. It was for these kinds of people that Moses fasted. But what's a big deal about idolatry anyways? Well, here's here's a big deal. The second reason he fasted, second reason he fasted was because idolatry was going to destroy his people. Because idolatry was going to destroy his people. His God said, you know, Moses, step aside because I'm about to do something because of their idolatry. The, the, The crime of idolatry is first and foremost because it is against God, because God is eternally worthy of our worship. But God is, he's not just sitting up there in heaven, he's like, oh, I just, I, I, need, I need their worship because if I don't have it, then I'm going to be so sad. I'm going to feel in, incomplete. For God to say that we should worship him and no other, it's not a selfish thing, right? Everyone, will, everyone who, who has preached on this say it is the most selfless thing that, you can, that he can give to his people because only in worshiping the true and living God will our hearts be satisfied the way that we were meant to be satisfied because we were created and made to worship God. And when we worship idols, we're worshiping at the altar of things that will not give us what we're looking for. So you see uh, 1 Kings 18, when the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Ashtoreth were were worshiping and, and they were cutting themselves and they were calling on these idols, and it says they were driven to a frenzy. And Elijah said, maybe he's just uh, in the bathroom. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's taking a walk. Try harder is what Elijah says. And so they try harder. They scream louder. They yell more. And they cut themselves even more. And, and, and First Kings, the author of First Kings says, the response was nothing. No one said a word. There was no response. No fire came down from heaven. There was no satisfaction. In fact, these people were all destroyed because of their idolatry. This is the nature of idolatry, is not only does it leave the people who worship it empty, but idolatry always destroys the people who engage in its worship. And maybe, maybe this is you. Maybe, first of all, it's not about other people. Maybe this is you. And how have you seen the destructive effects of idolatry in your life? You see it all the time in Hollywood. You see it recently in Charlie Sheen's life, right? He, his idol, the thing that he could not live without. My, my heart goes out to this guy, man. He couldn't live without drugs, and it's ruining, it's destroying, utterly destroying his life. You see this in reality TV. Shows like trash, like The Bachelor. Bachelorette. These people go on, their, their one thing that they want in life is they want love. They want a marriage. They want to be married, and you look at their their lives, and they completely destroy their lives in their pursuit of their idols because their idol will never give to them what they think their idol will give. 
Their idol is not big enough to do that. Basically, idolatry is we were turning and, and looking to, to, to created things to give us what only God could give us. It is a God substitute that will never, ever, ever satisfy us. Whether it's a relationship like it is in Bachelor. Whether it's, it's po- some uh, John and Kate plus eight. Whatever it is that they were seeking. Whatever their idol was. Maybe it was fame. Ends up destroying them. Maybe it was their family. Ends up destroying them. Whatever our idols are, they will catch up to us, and it will destroy you and me. And it's not just bad things. It's good things also. Any good, anything that we take and make ultimate and, and hope that this will give to me what only God can give, it will never satisfy. It will never satisfy. In fact, we are on a quick road to that idol destroying our lives. It's a dream. It's whatever it is. We all know the Ten Commandments talk against idolatry, the Second Commandment, but I think this is, this is the, the craziest thing. Not only does it destroy our lives, but it, it, as you read the Second Commandment, there's a first paragraph and a second paragraph. second paragraph says, those who worship, here's, here's why it's so, it's so heinous. Because not only does it destroy your life, but it affects generations, your children and their children's generation to the third and fourth generation. Idolatry is not just about me and my sin between me and God as if that wasn't bad enough. And it affects the generations to come. That's why idolatry, in part, is so insidious. Is because you are ruining the lives of children yet unborn. In fact, anytime, anytime we worship idols, anytime we worship idols, we're committing child sacrifice. Anytime we worship idols, we worship the idol of work. And we work and we work and we work and we work and we sacrifice our children on the altar of our work. We, we, we struggle with, with lust or sexual desires. Uh, you struggle with these things and, and, and you end up getting married and you end up having children. You're sacrificing your children on the altar of your desires. Uh, you, you want status, and so you want to progress through the ranks in your, in your corporation, in your company, whatever it is. And so you, you give long hours to that, and you neglect your family. And in so doing, you commit child sacrifice. So I would never do that. I would never do that. I love my kids more than anything. That's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm providing for them. That's why I'm giving them everything that they need. And yet your children grow further and further away from you and from God. Your idolatry, our idolatry, the idolatry of people that you care for is not only affecting them, but it's affecting third and fourth generations. One of my former pastors uh, uh, named James, he tells, wrote a book and he tells a story about how when he was 19 years old and his uh, girlfriend was 18, uh, they had premarital sex. He was, he was already in, in, felt the call of God to go into ministry, but committed premarital sex and they, had, they got pregnant. And so both sets of grandparents, uh, very upset, very angry, said, how could you do this? This is a shame to you as you prepare to go into ministry. It's a shame to our family. They said, you need to get rid of the child. Um, lived with all kinds of, they, they moved from one coast of California to the other coast so they could be anonymous. Shotgun marriage had this child. First three months of this child's life. He grew up at the first three months, day and night, he would cry, completely colicky. Uh, he was 13 years old, and he would confess that 
all throughout his childhood years, he would hear these voices saying, you don't deserve to live. You should be dead, not alive. You're worthless. He was always timid, always would be the one who was afraid. I, I, I knew this child. He was, he was, he's not a child now, but uh, he was, we, we grew up for many years together in the same church. Always kind of fearful, insecure, never felt like he belonged. When he was 13 years old, uh, his family went out to Hawaii, were part of this, this kind of healing ministry and just a lot of confession in their family. And when he was 13 years old, his parents said for the first time they felt convicted to tell him about the circumstances surrounding his birth. They said, we were, um, you know, we were young. We were foolish. And though we loved God, um, this was our idol. And we gave into it. We gave into our lust. We gave into our feelings. And that's how you were born. And so the first question he asked is, what did grandma and grandpa think about it? And they told him, they didn't want us to have you. And all of a sudden, he's realizing played out in this second generation, their sin affecting 13 years of his life growing up. And so they asked for his forgiveness. And at 13 years old, they said, would you pray for, can you pray for mom and dad? And as he prayed, this is what he prayed. He said, oh, God, this world is so evil. It's full of evil. And then the next thing he prayed, it shocked his dad. He said, God, let this sin stop in my generation. And his dad was, as he's telling the story, he says he was saying prophetically what he did not know. That his father, James, was also born in that same kind of relationship. A product of premarital sex. And it had, their sin had affected the second generation. See, our idolatry is not just, it's not just about you're ruining your life. Your friend's idolatry, your student's idolatry, your house church member's idolatry is not just about ruining their lives. It's ruining their children's lives. It's ruining other lives to the next year, even generations yet unborn. This is the insidious and heinous nature of idolatry. And it is so deeply selfish. It's not just about your pleasure, but you're robbing other people of the life that has been promised to them by faith in Christ. And Moses said, I, this is destroying my people. It is destroying the generations to come. And so he fasted because of that fact, because of that reality. This is the last thing. Why did he fast? He fasted because people were given to idolatry, because the idolatry was destroying his people. The last reason he fasted was because love could not stand to see his people destroyed. You think about these people in your life. Think about these people in your life whose lives are being destroyed by idolatry. You think about people in your life who their families are being ruined by their idolatry. And Moses says, love cannot stand to see them ruin their lives. You think about those people who are raising their children and the things that their children are seeing is a worship of idolatry. How do you feel towards them? What do you feel in your heart? When you think about people like that, when you think about those lives, where does your mind go to? Where does your heart go to? What do you feel in situations like that? What, 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 what do you think? What do you feel? What, is, what drives you in that time? And a lot of times we look at people like that and we can, we can easily judge them. We can condemn them, say they should know better. How dare they do that? But Moses, his heart was filled with love for them, and love does hard things. 
Right? It's not just a feeling, but love always is moved to act upon. So in our heart of hearts, if we see people who are ruining their lives and our heart is filled with love for them, then love always moves to do hard things on their behalf. Yesterday, um, Olive and Manny and I were at home, and um, Olive was cleaning up some beans that Manny had spilled all over her, her play area. And so in that place, she saw a lizard. And so um, Olive took some bug spray, some high-potency bug spray, and she killed the lizard. And then she said, uh, hey, can you go clean that lizard up now? Uh, there's not many things I hate more in this life than lizards. Uh, they are, quite frankly, the bane of my existence. I can totally imagine life without lizards. I could totally imagine this world without lizards. If God were to somehow take a magnet, lizard magnet, and lift up all the magnets and take them all out, I would have no problems with it. Probably overlooking the fact that they do good things for us, probably. But um, I don't care. I, I, I don't like lizards. I said, can you clean up this lizard? And so I... Uh, I, I poked at it, and it was still moving. I said, Olive, I'm not going to touch it yet. It's still moving. Not like Daniel. Daniel can pick up. Li- One time I had a lizard in my office at the old church, and it was crawling around, and he said, I'll get it. He grabbed it with his hand, and he threw it out. And I, can't, I don't like doing stuff like that because lizards are weird. And, <laughs> and so this is, this is where I, I poked it. It kept moving. I said, Olive, it's still moving. I'm not going to do anything till it's dead. And she's like, ah, just, it's almost dead. It's just kind of writhing around in pain. So I, I, I took a broom, and I was going to just like, do a, a hockey slap shot and knock it out. And she's like, no, I don't want it to kind of roll all over where many plays. So I had to carefully uh, sweep it into a little thing and, and make sure that it wasn't going to jump on me. And, you know, like you know, all scary movies do that. They're, they're dead. And then you're about to and then, <laughs> <laughs> just make sure it doesn't do that. And so I, put it, I threw it out. And I realized something. I realized that's the price of love. Isn't it? Love does hard things for people. And so here... Love does hard things. Not all, he had fasted 40 days already in receiving the Ten Commandments. He sees the idolatry, and the first thing he does is he falls on his face, and he says, my people are going to get destroyed. And 40 days more, he goes to the mat. And he fasts, and he prays so that God spare the people. Spare these people. But not only does he do that, but... It says in verse 21, I took that th- sinful thing of yours... The calf you had made and burned it in the fire. This is hard to, to, to take someone's object of worship and to say, here, I'm going to help you to latch your affections onto God because this is not helping you. Because this is, in fact, not helping you. It's not just leaving you empty. It's destroying your life, and it's going to destroy the life of your descendants if you don't deal with this right now. And so love did that hard thing, not only to fast, but to help him remove this thing. And here's the thing. One of the things that we understand about love in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is, is patient. And I know some of you are like, you know, I, 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 I've prayed before for people. I've prayed, you know, in fact, many years. I've fasted for them, and nothing has changed. I think there's something highly encouraging here to understand where did this idol worship come from? It says Moses was on the mountain of God receiving the law of God, doing something highly, highly, highly spiritual and fasting for 40 days. And it was in that time when he was fasting that his people began to turn away into idolatry. Some of us say, you know what? I fasted, I prayed, and nothing has happened. Here for Moses, it was these people went from, from, from okay to worse before they became better. And Moses said, even so, even so, I'm going to continue to fight. I'm going to continue to fast. Instead of looking down on them, these stiff-necked people, verse, it would say in verse 24, they were, 
you have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I've known you. For as long as I've known you, you guys have been jacked up people. You've come to church and you've worshipped, or you've come to the, wherever it was, the, the, the meeting place to worship, and, and, and you're, you've, you've always been rebellious against the Lord, but still I'm going to fast for you. That's what he's saying. And how many of us would, would be moved and loved that way? That as long as I've known this person, as long as they've been coming to my house church, as long as they've been uh, coming to my Sunday school class, they've always been half-hearted, they've always been wishy-washy, but I will still go to the mat and fight for them. Instead of judging, instead of criticizing, instead of condemning, instead of pointing a finger, instead of, ah, these people are so stiff-necked. I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray for them. Knowing that even with Moses, they got better. I'm sorry, they got worse before they got better. This is how far he would go. In Exodus 32, Moses says, God, don't destroy my people, but rather blot my name out of the book of life so that theirs could be kept in. That's how much he loved. That's how great the cost of love sometimes is. Love does hard things. You see, we see this in every culture. I was hearing a preacher named Ajit Fernando talk, and he was talking about in, in Sri Lanka, um, in his country, in places in the Middle East, when he preaches the gospel to a people completely uh, pagan. He was talking about how we all understand this high principle of one person sacrificing for another. You see this in the realm of nature when a mother bird would stand in the way of, uh, to protect her baby bird when a snake was coming. And the mother bird would get killed by the snake so that her baby bird could go on living. And every culture praises that. And every culture understands what it is when, when a man or woman gives their life in battle for the sake of a greater cause. And they're given medals of honor. They're hailed as war heroes because they have taken the high road. Because they have done what is difficult. And out of love, they've given themselves for another. And then he would go on to say, is it not true then? If this is true in the created world... In this world of idolatry, amongst the people who are created, if we realize the virtue and the good in this, then how could it not be true that the creator would do this for the creature? Because if we recognize this as the highest good, the principle of highest good in the world, that one person would give their life for another, if the creator would not do that for the sake of his creation, then what we're saying is that the creature is greater than the creator. And in Exodus 32, Moses says, God, blot my name out of the book of life for their sake. Overlook their sin. God says, I will spare them, but I cannot blot you out. I will not blot you out. I will not overlook their sin. Why? Because he was looking forward to a day when the creator God would come. The one who in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he came into this world. And he dwelt amongst his people. He came to which was his own, that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And on the cross, this is where Jesus offered up that same prayer that Moses did. God, blot my, Father, blot my name out of the book so that they might be brought in. And to Moses, he denied. And yet to Jesus. See, Moses could never pay the price for his people. Wouldn't it be a fair trade? One sinner for the sake of a nation of sinners? No way. But the perfect and sinless 
Son of God, giving his life to a people undeserving and taking our place to show us the principle of highest good, that love does hard things, that love not only feels but love acts. It sacrifices, it gives to a people he saw were being destroyed by their idolatry. How about for you and me? Think about your coworkers. Think about your brother or sister. Think about your children. Think about your classmates. Think about your younger brothers, sisters. Think about your older brothers and sisters. People who are living in darkness, people enslaved by addictions, people enslaved to idolatry. Has the gospel of Christ rendered our hearts enough to understand that he who was above reproach stood in the gap for you and me and paid the ultimate price so that we now, as we look out at people, recipients of grace we are, we can extend that grace to other people to say, God, I will stand in the gap on behalf of these people so that idolatry would not destroy them. Would we be willing to say, I know we're willing to fast for ourselves and for the glory of God, but would we be willing to do that for the sake of a people who don't deserve such a people? Let's think of the people in our lives. And hopefully as you've been hearing this word, you have been led to think about the idolatry in your heart so that we could be able to pray these things to the Lord and surrender. But perhaps... As we continue to hear the word of God, we begin to think about people in our lives who are hurting themselves, who are destroying their lives. And to boot, they're destroying their families to come as well. Because they're chasing after their idols and chasing after it, chasing after it. Their idols will never die for them. Your boyfriend will never save your soul. Your husband, wife, your children will never save your soul. Your work will never die for you. Your money will never give itself for you. In fact, it will just keep on robbing and stealing and taking from you, leaving you not only empty, leaving you not only bankrupt, but it destroys your life and the lives of those who come after you. You could argue with me, but this is God's word here. But how are we going to live life here? We're going to let people continue in their idolatrous ways, continue to let them destroy their lives. We do the hard thing. Maybe God would be calling us, definitely God would be calling us to pray for them. Maybe he'd be calling us to go and do a hard thing of helping them to remove their idols. But maybe he'd be calling us to go a little bit further and to say, God, this much I want them to see you, to taste and see by me withholding my taste, my food, so that they could have you. Let's take a minute to pray to the Lord as we respond to his word, asking that he would give us strength, asking, praying for those people in our lives, asking that God would not destroy them, that the idolatry would not destroy them, that he would spare them, that he would be patient with them, just as he's been been patient with us. Let's pray together for a couple moments, and then we'll continue to, to worship. be willing to go to a hard place for them.
Father in heaven, we thank you for speaking to our hearts and we pray that our hearts would have been good soil so that you would allow these words to bear fruit within us. Father, each of us have siblings, friends, acquaintances, parents, children, spouses, relatives, students, members. We think about their lives, their lives are being ravaged by sin and idolatry. And our hearts are moved because they're looking to created things to give them what only the creator can give. They're saying to these things, idol, this much I want you. And that idol is giving them nothing in return. And their lives have been torn apart. And apart from grace, they will not turn back to you. Father, we pray that you would convict our hearts with love. Not just to do a token application of this, say I'm going to fast a breakfast when I never even eat breakfast. I'm going to fast a breakfast and pray and that's it. But God, would you so burden our hearts that the lost would be the heartbeat of our lives. And as we fast and as we pray, that they would become our inheritance in Christ. That you would help us. That you would help us to believe. You would help us to dream. You would help us to trust. And that your great purposes would be fulfilled in our lives and in theirs. Through our grace-driven obedience to you. We thank you. We love you because you've loved us. Undeserving, idolatrous people. First, we thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.